The day shall come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, look here, do not go away, do not run after them, for just as the lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by his generation. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it shall be also in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planning, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on that day that the Son of Man is revealed on that day. Let not the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house go down and take them away. And likewise, let not the one who is in the field turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life shall lose it. And whoever loses his life shall preserve it. Father, thank you that you are sovereign over the affairs of men and nations, that you have orchestrated the very day in which your son will return from heaven. Thank you that it could come for the church today. And thank you that you reminded us that the atmosphere at the end of time would be like the days of Noah and the days of Lot, days of moral impropriety and days of moral sexual perversion. God, help us to keep our eyes wide open to see the day that we find ourselves in. We thank you for your word. We've just sung to you as a prayer that you would open our eyes. Thank you for the power of the word as a seed that is planted, an imperishable seed to produce a second birth. And thank you for its power to sanctify us as our minds are renewed and we're transformed We're so grateful that you've given us the mind of Christ, a new capacity to see spiritual truth that we did not prior have to being born again. So we ask in humility that you would open our eyes to it, and more than just seeing it, help us to apply it. Father, please come and fill me today because without your help, I'm really useless to you. So I pray that you would fill me and anoint me and speak to each and every person in Graniteville, in Bluffton, in Hilton Head, those who are live streaming and those who are here, that you might open our hearts to the truth and that we might apply it. Those who are lost, may they step today into the kingdom. To those who are saved, may we be more faithful and bold in our witness, even in the week that is in front of us, to take the gospel as good stewards, to reach out to the people all around us will someday either be everlastingly happy or eternally miserable. May we show the compassion that someone showed us in giving us the gospel. And we ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Take God's word this morning. Would you turn to the book of Revelation chapter 13? If you've been with us in our study, when we came to Revelation chapters 12 and 13, we are introduced to seven key characters, three of whom that we want to concern ourselves with this morning. One who is called the dragon, he's identified for us in the text as the serpent of old who is called the devil. Then we are told here of the beast. We often refer to him simply as the Antichrist. And then there is the false prophet.
there are three in this evil trinity of sorts that will try to uh, imitate the Holy Trinity, where Satan assumes the role of God the Father, the Antichrist will assume the role of God the Son, and the false prophet, like the Holy Spirit who points men to Christ, the false prophet will point people to the Antichrist. And for a time, it will appear that this satanic trio is succeeding. But eventually, the world empire of the Antichrist will collapse. The nations of the world will gather against Israel in the battle of Armageddon, and Jesus will come back and rule. Now, the events that we're studying, people will be pouring over these pages of Scripture, maybe even listening to this sermon when the coming tribulation comes, and it will have great relevance to them. But remember, all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man, the woman of God might be adequately equipped for every good work. And so for most of human history, the revelation was written for these seven churches and by extension us. There is truth here that God has for you and I today, though it has great application in the coming days after the rapture. Now we studied in chapter 12, if you remember, how Satan fights against God and against his people Israel by accusing both the saints who are in heaven and those who are on earth. And Jesus gives ultimately the victory. Now, very often our adversary, Satan, works through human means, whether it's a Stalin or Hitler or some agnostic humanist. But ultimately, he has his man who is coming who will be called the son of perdition, the man of sin. Most of us simply in the church cut to the chase. We don't call him by one of some 30 titles given him in the scripture. We just call him the Antichrist. And the devil is a great imitator, and he will imitate like the world has never seen before at this time in human history. Now, if you remember in the opening verses of John's gospel, the same one who wrote the book of Revelation. He said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word, then he says, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glories of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So these two verses teach us that Jesus is a living, breathing revelation of God the Father. Which is why John can then say in verse 18 of that opening chapter to his gospel, no one has seen God, a reference here to the Father, no one has seen God the Father at any time. The only begotten God, that's Jesus, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. You see, you and I could not fully understand God until God put a face on himself. And it says here that the Lord Jesus, the only begotten God, has explained him. The word explained is the Greek word that gives us our word exegesis. A pastor is supposed to exegete the scripture. Eisegesis is when someone takes a text of scripture and they read something into it, whether it's modern psychology or something that has nothing to do with what it says. And there are many personalities in our day that do that, the Joel Olsteins and a host of others that take verses out of context 
and they teach things, but even evangelicals do it to try to make a point. That's eisegesis. A pastor is to exegete the Scripture. He is to stay within the bounds of what God has revealed, but he is to reveal what God has said. Now, John identifies the Lord Jesus with this Hebraism, that he is in the bosom of the Father. And when it says he is in the bosom of the Father, that tells us a great deal. For Jesus did not come from the head of the Father to reveal the wisdom of God, though indeed he did reveal his wisdom. Neither does it say that he came from the foot of the Father to be a servant, though he was a servant, for the Son of Man came to serve. But Jesus came from the bosom of the Father to reveal the very heart of God, and that's precisely what he did. He is the only Son which is in the bosom of the Father. So if you want to know what God is like, John is saying, look at Christ. If you want to know what Satan is like, look at the Antichrist. Remember that occasion when Helen Keller came into this world? Can you imagine what it was like to be her parents? She could neither see or hear. She could not see her mother's face. She could not hear her mother's voice. And her mother would literally stand over her crib and weep and say, Oh, Helen, Helen, your mother loves you. How can I help you to see that I love you? And then one day God broke through in Ann Sullivan, who was able to communicate, and for the first time she began to understand the love of her father and her mother. God was saying over a perishing world, I love you, I care for you, and I want you to see it. And then God broke through in Christ. Why study the Antichrist? Because the Revelation says much about him. Because in studying the Antichrist, you are learning something about your enemy, Satan. And any good soldier will tell you that to fight an enemy properly, you need to know what your enemy is like. Jesus can say to Philip, he who has seen seen me has seen the Father. Paul can tell the Colossians that the Lord Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The writer of the Hebrews can say that he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. The same principle applies to the Antichrist. Now, it would be inaccurate to say that the Antichrist is Satan in human flesh. The incarnation can in no way be replicated. But nonetheless, it is as close as you can get. When you study the Antichrist, you really see what Satan is like. Now, we took two weeks just to study the first four verses. Today, we're going to look at verses 5 through 10, but to give us a running start into the context, I want us to begin reading in verse 1. Follow along in your Bible if you have one. And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having 10 horns and seven heads. And on his horns were 10 diadems and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard and his feet were like those of a bear and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him power in his throne and great authority. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain. And his fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like the beast, and who is able to wage war with him? 
There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name in his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. It was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who had been slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword... With the sword, he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and faith of the saints. Now, let me bring you into the context because it's been a few weeks since we've been in this text. And I understand as Peter teaches me and as Christ illustrates, repetition is the best teacher. So let's refresh where we are in this chapter. If you remember in chapters 12 and 13, the narrative drastically changes And you know you're being introduced to a new section in the Revelation. Specifically, seven different personages are introduced to us. Here they are. First, we studied the woman who's identified as the one, the people who give us the Messiah, the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. Then we studied the dragon who's identified for us as the devil, the male child, that's the Messiah, that's Christ, the Lord Jesus, Michael, who's termed the archangel, the rest of her children, that was saved Israel, Uh, then the beast out of the sea, the antichrist, and the beast out of the earth, the false prophet. Seven different personages given to us either directly or symbolically. We, o- we studied in the opening verse of the Revelation that this book was communicated in the margin of the NASB. It says it was signified. In other words, it's given to us in signs and symbols. And of course, to understand the meaning of the real people, the real situations, and the real events that are described, you have to often know what the symbol refers to. And much of the revelation is understood by looking at the Old Testament because 300 of the 404 verses are direct allusions to the Old Testament. We'll see that again this morning. Or sometimes a symbol is given, and even within a few verses or within a few paragraphs, the symbol is interpreted for us. Now, we learned in the opening verse, and the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Now, remember, the chapter and verse divisions are artificial, so don't let them distract you. They're helpful and that I could say turn to chapter 13 today. But they can be distracting in that they break and divide the text where God never divided it. So just keep that in mind. Look back at chapter 12, verse 17. So the dragon, who in verse 9 of the 12th chapter is identified as Satan, the devil, the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children, those who didn't flee into the wilderness, who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. The woman, Israel, gives us a Jew named Jesus. The Messiah would be a descendant of David, the prophet wrote. From David's house, the Messiah would go. If you don't like the Jewish people, you don't like Jesus, because Jesus is a Jew. And he's going to vent his final fury against those who do not take Christ's words because they either had not heard them 
or they did not understand them, where they fled to the wilderness for protection. And the rest of her children, because the devil's time is shortened at this point, and he knows it, he will rage, full outrage against the Jewish people. And these Jewish people who are still around Israel are described as those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Listen, the greatest anti-Semite who ever lived is Satan. Why is it that this small group of people in the world, 12, 13 million, I know one of our speakers initially said 17 million, he was including all the half-Jews in the world. There's only 12 to 13 million pure-blooded Jews in the world, period. They live on a piece of property the size of Delaware, New Jersey, And yet, every day, they are the center of attention. Why? Because God is going to complete human history through the nation of Israel. And Satan is the greatest anti-Semite. He hates the Jewish people who gave us the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. And so he continually attacks the Jewish people. Yesterday, I was reading about all these Jews in France who this past week were being persecuted, that they can't even walk down the street without people spitting on them. Where do you think that originates from? I'll tell you, it originates from the heart of Satan, the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air, who's energizing the sons of disobedience. Now, the word communicated in Revelation 1.1, this revelation was communicated. Again, in the margin, it says signified. I like that word, signified. The first four letters of signified is S-I-G-N. And so the angel of God signified this message to John. And so when we read here of a beast coming out of the sea, we need to know what that symbol represents. Now, we've seen all the way through Revelation and in other places in the Bible, especially in Daniel, that when God speaks of a sea, he can be speaking of a literal sea, or he can be speaking of a sea figuratively, or he can take and combine both terms into a single context. So it can be used of water in the Bible, or it can be used figuratively like we do in English. We speak of a great sea of people. And so Daniel and Isaiah and the Revelation use it both literally and figuratively to describe the sea of humanity, the Gentile nations of the world, from which Daniel the prophet tells us the Antichrist will come. We are living in a time that Jesus called in the Gospel of Luke the times of the Gentiles. The times of the Gentiles began with Nebuchadnezzar, as Daniel predicted. And the Jewish people have been oppressed since the time of Nebuchadnezzar. And even though on May 14, 1948, they became a nation and they gained their independence, all a part of a fulfilled prophecy where they would become a nation in one day, the Scripture says. And God, again, is gathering them back in the land because a lot has to take place through Israel, not for the rapture, but for the second coming to happen. Nonetheless, they've been oppressed. Virtually every single year, at least 50%, some years 75% of all the resolutions made in the United Nations since Israel became a nation is against Israel. There's an oppression. I saw the beast coming up out of the sea. So if the Antichrist is going to come out of the Gentile nations of the world, 
Do we have any idea over what section of the world he will come from? Yes, we do. Notice here, it's not a sea, but the sea, it's articular. And we've already seen that in the Scripture, there are four great seas. There's the Red Sea, the Galilean Sea, there's the Dead Sea, and then there's the Great Sea, what we call today the Mediterranean Sea. Further, his origin is described in verse 2. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, his mouth like the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power and throne and authority. That, by the way, is the exact imagery we studied in Daniel chapter 7. And it describes these subsequent empires ending up with the Roman Empire. Here's a map of the Roman Empire in John's day. This is the world by which, from which the Antichrist will come. Here's a modern-day map with some of the countries on it. So, um, what do we know about the origin of this man? Well, Daniel tells us, and Revelation will confirm it, especially when we come to chapters 17 and 18, that the Roman Empire will be revived, and it will be revived in ten parts. The Roman Empire never existed in ten parts. That's one of the ways you know it's futuristic when Daniel describes it, not to mention he tells us of this coalition of ten parts, ten nations, that happens at the end of time. He specifies it specifically. And out of those ten nations, an eleventh will rise, an insignificant leader from an insignificant nation who, from which the Antichrist will come. So he comes from the heartland of the old Roman Empire. And Daniel underscores that. We studied Daniel 9.26. And if you weren't here for Daniel 9, download searchthescriptures.org app at the App Store and listen to the messages on Daniel 9 if you can't listen to the whole book, because that will give you the schematic of much of what we are studying here. And of course, Daniel predicted that there would come a time in human history where the uh, Antichrist would go into the temple and commit the abomination of desolation. He not only predicts that, he predicts all these future empires, and one after another, they all came true. Now, the liberal critics in our day love to attack Daniel. They don't deny that the empires that he identifies were literally fulfilled in human history. You can. It is so clear. The prophecies are so precise. But because they don't believe in a God who is supernatural and able to do great things, because they deny through evolution Genesis 1-1, they have trouble believing the rest of the Bible. And so they say, no, this happened just as it was written. But Daniel was not writing as a prophet. He was writing as a historian. The Daniel was written in the second century A.D., not 600 years before Christ. Well, number one, they differ with Jesus. Jesus called him Daniel the prophet. I go with Jesus. Amen? Number two, because of the nature of the prophecies, he also gave some prophecies between the Old and the New Testament period which were also literally fulfilled. And the Dead Sea Scrolls dated the prophet Daniel prior to that period. And so their whole argument completely falls apart. So Daniel 9.26 speaks of the people, speaking of the Roman people, of the princes to come, that he will go into a rebuilt Jewish temple 
and commit the abomination of desolation. But first he predicts that that people will destroy the temple. And in 70 AD, that is precisely what happened. Now, let's ask a question. If indeed this coming leader is going to come from the Gentile nations, from the former Roman Empire, does that mean he's a Gentile? And the answer is no. I believe the coming Antichrist is a Jew, and let me give you four reasons. Number one, because he comes from a Gentile country doesn't make him a Gentile any more than a Jew from America would be a Gentile. In fact, as early as two centuries before Christ, 200 years before Christ, if you go to Italy, I've seen some of the Jewish graves that go back 200 years before Christ. They refer to them as the Yehudim Italicum in Hebrew, that is Jewish Italians. Now, if indeed the Antichrist comes from the former Roman Empire, and he does, it may be that he comes from the capital of the former Roman Empire. I wouldn't be dogmatic on that. But when we come to the 17th chapter, we're going to see that these uh, seven uh, heads represent both seven kings and a city built on seven hills. And we will see when we come to Revelation 17, there is only one city in the entire world that will fit the biblical parameters from which the false religious empire will reign through the false prophet during this seven-year period, and it's the city of Rome. With that said, he could be from Italy, and certainly they are an insignificant country. And by the way, I'm not against Italians. My last name is actually not Brogi, it's Brogi. And so when I go to my, my son, he was uh, meeting Anthony Scalia and, uh, at a Christmas party, two of them. And one of them went up to Justice Scalia at the time, and he said, hello, my name's Grant Brogi, Milan. And uh, he said, oh, yeah, your family's from Milan. Of course, he didn't have it right. My other son, Jeremy, went up to him. Jeremy didn't know his brother had met him. Jeremy Brogi, Florence. <laughs> well, anyway, in either case, I am Italian, at least in partial. I also have a lot of Irish blood in me, but ultimately we're all related because we're all from one blood, the Bible says. We all descend from Adam and Eve. Lay that aside, he could be an Italian Jew, but the fact that he comes from a Gentile nation doesn't disqualify him from being a Jew because there's Jews all across the planet. Secondly, he comes and he commits the abomination of desolation. A Jew would be most qualified to go into the temple because of the sacredness of the temple in the minds of the Jewish people. I doubt for a single second they'd let some Gentile go in when he commits that act. They don't know he's going to commit that act, but they would not let him in. Third, it's inconceivable that the Messiah would be a Gentile in a Jew's mind. Now, we believe Messiah has come. They're going to learn that. The Jewish people are going to learn that. But it's inconceivable to any religious Jew today. You go up and you ask any religious Jew, will the coming Messiah, who they don't think has come yet, will he be a Jew or a Gentile? They'll laugh at the question. Are you kidding me? He's a Jew. In fact, most secular Jewish people recognize the coming Messiah will be a Jew. Why? Because that's what the Bible reveals about him. He is a descendant of Abraham. 
from the tribe of Judah, from the family of David. It's very, very specific. But in addition, we have biblical evidence to show that he is Jewish. Remember what Jesus said in John 5? It's that great chapter. You should learn it. Because if a JW or a Mormon or a Christian science or somebody else shows up at your door, you're trying to prove that Jesus claimed to be Lord. John 5 is one of the most powerful arguments. And in John 5, speaking to his Jewish people who had rejected him, he said, if I come in my Father's name and you do not receive me, which they did not, he came to his own, his own received him not. If another shall come in his own name, you will receive him. So because they rejected the good shepherd, Jesus predicted they would come and they would embrace another shepherd. Now, many of you know that unlike English, there are two words for another in Greek. There's the word heteros. We get our word heterosexual, speaking of another of a different kind. And then there's the word alos that means another of a same kind. Jesus said, if another, he uses the word alos, shall come. Another like him, another like him how, another like him, and that he will be Jewish. Now, just think your way through this. Messiah, Hebrew word for Greek word Christ, Christos. We speak of a coming anti-Messiah or more prolifically, an antichrist, one who is coming who's against Christ. The word anti, we have been learning and we will see further as we work through the revelation, can mean against or it can mean in the place of. And both nuances are given in the New Testament to describe this coming man of sin. In one sense, he comes against Christ. He's the opposite of Christ. And so our word antonym that speaks of opposites. Jesus came with godly power. The Antichrist is coming with the devil's power. We've already seen in this chapter, he comes up out of the sea. That is, he comes up out of the sea of Gentile nations, further elucidated by verse 2 from the former Roman Empire. But we've already studied also in Revelation 11 that the uh, coming Antichrist comes up out of the abyss. Which is it? He's a real human. He comes out of the former Roman Empire, but he comes out of the abyss in the sense the abyss is that place of the most evil and hard demons are. And so there are some demons who are fearful that Jesus there in Cursi, where he dealt with the Gadarene demoniacs, that he would send them into the abyss. God is going to open up the abyss at one point, as we've already studied in the Revelation, in the power of the Antichrist will come from the abyss. He will have satanic power. So geographically, he's described as coming up out of the sea. Spiritually, in terms of his evil empowerment, he comes up out of the abyss. But not only is he the opposite of Jesus, and Jesus was kind and compassionate and loving, this man is as cruel as anyone you will ever see when his full character is displayed, especially in the second half of the seven years. But he also comes in the place of Jesus. Satan often disguises himself as an angel of light. And if he does, so don't his servants. Look again, I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were 
blasphemous names. And then it says, and the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, his mouth like a lion. And it was the devil, the dragon, who gave him his power, his throne, and his authority. Now, if you remember, Daniel is describing, using the exact same terminology in Daniel 7, these successive empires, but he does it in reverse order. First, he speaks of the bear, of the lion, then he speaks of the bear, and then he speaks of the leopard. Why? Because he's looking into the future, and he's giving a prediction of what is going to happen. It's already happened. John is looking back as what has happened, but of course, he's looking back for a different reason. He's describing the nature of this coming man. He will come like a leopard, and we saw in Daniel's prophecy, it's all secularists agree. Even hardcore pagan liberals agree that Daniel was writing about the great Grecian Empire and Alexander the Great, who with incredible speed conquered the world. And then the bear in his empire, if you remember, pictured the Medo-Persian Empire with its crushing claws and its massive strength for which they were known. And then the lion, if you remember, represented Babylon. And today that symbol continues. You see the lions of Babylon and and that empire under Nebuchadnezzar had a ravenous, uh, terrifying appetite. Well, Daniel doesn't even try to come up with a beast to describe this final revived Roman empire. And neither does John, but he does something that Daniel doesn't. He takes all three and he combines them into one. And he says, this is what the coming Antichrist will be like. Symbolically, he'll be like a lion and that his rise to power will be swift. It's like after 9-11, it's like, what happened? Man, I used to be able to, to walk with my family to the gate and say goodbye to him. Now we, we've lost all these. Free- Overnight, everything changed. You haven't seen anything yet. I mean, he will come like a leopard swiftly to power. He will come with the feet of a bear to crush his opponents. He will come with the mouth of a lion and that he will devour anyone who stands in his way. And so metaphorically, John calls him the beast because of his cruel, hateful nature that wants to destroy. And the dragon, remember that's Satan, defined for us in Revelation 12, 9, These symbols interpret themselves. He gave him his power, his throne, and his authority. He has given his power, that his strength to rule, his throne. He's a world leader. He is going to lead a world government, and he has great authority. And the word for authority, exousia, describes someone who has the ability to do that which he pleases. And so this man is coming like that. And just as the Lord Jesus could say, he who has seen me has seen the Father, even so, this coming world leader, in essence, can say, he who has seen him has seen what the dragon is like. This is Satan's Superman, and he comes with wonder-working power. He comes with great deception. Verse 3, I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. Now, why is it that millions of billions will be deceived and follow after this man? Well, number one, he's a master liar. Number two, many people, like everyone in this room virtually, who has heard the gospel with power and authority and clarity, 
who did not believe, the Bible says it will be too late for them to believe when the tribulation starts. Because they rejected the truth, we'll study it further, they will believe a lie. That is going to happen. But there are people across the world who've never heard about Jesus, and millions of those will be converted, and not everyone will be deceived. But this coming man of sin will come with incredible deception, and many people who are what the Revelation literally calls earth dwellers, who have their affection on this life only, who love the darkness over the light, they will gladly give themselves to the Antichrist, whether they've ever heard about Jesus or not. But one of the things that he does, this deceiver, is he comes with lying Signs, wonders, and miracles, as Paul describes them in 2 Thessalonians 2. And one of the miracles is mentioned here. It says that he has been slain, but his fatal wound was healed. Now, we've already noted, and we'll see it when we come to the 17th chapter, that the term beast can be used metaphorically to describe this man's empire, or it can literally describe him. And so, for instance, when we say... uh, Hitler bombed London. We don't mean that he literally was in a plane and dropped the bombs. We're saying that Germany bombed London. We're using the person to describe the empire. It's used sometimes, and that's why it's, you have to carefully look at the context. And so some, knowing that there's a unique ability given to God alone, and Christ claims it for himself in John chapter 5 to raise people from the dead, therefore a proof of his deity, knowing that to be true, some say, well, what's being revived here, what was slain was the empire, and his empire comes back to life. Well, at least they're trying to not contradict what Jesus plainly said. But this is not an organization that's described here because there are two personal pronouns that are used. It speaks here of the word his. I have it underlined and circled, that pronoun in my Bible. And in addition, the first piece, whose, there's a second pronoun, whose fatal wound was healed. So some say it's an empire, but the problem is you have to deny the personal pronouns. Some say, well, this was not a real resurrection. This was a fake resurrection. Though the Antichrist didn't really die, he just faked dying, so to speak, to save the world, and then supposedly came to life. Or the third argument is that this was a real resurrection. And I think that's what the text is teaching. Let me give you several reasons why. Number one, Satan can do miracles. Now, his power is limited, but nonetheless, he can do the miraculous. Do you remember on that occasion when Satan brings a tornado under his power on Job and his family and, and wipes out his, his, his home and his children? Do you remember also he was given permission to lay boils upon Job? Job suffered boils all over his body. Satan has power. He gave power to the magicians there in Egypt who attempted to mimic what Moses did. The serpent, uh, the, the staff that turned into a serpent, their staffs also turned into serpents. Of course, Moses' staff ate all their serpents. Uh, they turned the water into blood. So Satan can do miracles, and he could certainly do this miracle. Secondly, A second possibility is Satan didn't raise him from the dead, but God Almighty raised him from the dead. 
God can give authority and power in miracles even to unbelievers. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 10 where Jesus commissions the 10? Authority, the Bible says, over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness was given to them, and that included Judas. Judas did miracles, and Christ gave him the authority to do those miracles. But Judas, of course, was an unbeliever. So God certainly could have done this miracle if He so chooses to do this as part of the judgment. Or third, if Satan did this miracle, and I would argue for that, that this was an actual resurrection, not a fake resurrection, understand that it was not the same kind of resurrection that Jesus is arguing for when He does so as a point of His own deity. Paul describes the Lord Jesus as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He describes him as the firstborn of the dead. And Jesus, when he defends his deed, he says this, for just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to those whom he wishes. That's an argument for his deity. He raises the dead. Now, if you were with us in the early sermons in the Revelation, in the first chapter, we saw that there are eight people in the Bible who are raised from the dead, three in the Old Testament, five in the New Testament, but they are raised to life only to die again. Jesus is the first one ever to be resurrected to life. He comes out of the grave as the first fruits in a resurrected body. And someday under his unique authoritative power as God the Son, he will raise up dead people, some to go to hell and some to go to heaven. Look, my body is not suited to walk on streets of gold. The Bible says this mortal must put on immortality. This perishable must put on the imperishable. Neither is the unbeliever's body suited to go to hell because in hell, the fire is never quenched, the worm never dies, and a person will spend eternity there. Their body's not consumed in a moment. Just like I get a new body, the unbeliever gets a new body, and Christ will do both. The devil cannot duplicate resurrection, but he can raise someone to life, and that's exactly what you're doing. We say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Look at verse 3, Pastor. I'm looking at it. I saw one of his heads as if, here's the argument, as if it had been slain. wasn't really slain. It was if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after it. Well, listen, as if it had been slain is very clear in Greek, and it's clear in English too if you just think your way through it. Think about how this same exact words were used right down to the letter in Revelation 5 and verse 6. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb, that's Jesus, standing as if slain, exact same Greek phrase. John does not mean that Jesus was not really slain, not really dead. He was literally slain. By extension and application, the Antichrist is going to have some assassination attempt against his life, and he will literally come back to life, and he's going to bedazzle the whole world. And it's going to result, verse 4, in the dragon being worshipped because he gave his authority to the beast. 
And so just as God the Father is worshiped through God the Son, for no one can come to the Father but through the Son, the evil one, Satan, as an angel of light, will be worshiped through this man, the Antichrist. Still with me? (laughs) That's the context. Let's get into the meat of the new passage. Okay, a few things I want you to see today. Number one, the Antichrist is coming to defy the God of heaven. He's coming to defy the God of heaven. Look at verse 5. There was given to him, this Antichrist, this beast, a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies. An authority to act for 42 months was given to him. Now, you will remember that the tribulation period is specified in the Bible as being seven years long, and it's divided into two equal halves. And so, as you can see in this chart, three terms are used in the Bible. It's called three and a half years, 1260 days, or 42 months. Two equal halves that are described as such by the Apostle Paul, the Lord Jesus, the Apostle John, and the prophet Daniel. Daniel, hundreds of years, ever before John is given the revelation and sees this vision in heaven, speaks of the same time frame, a seven-year time frame, divided into two halves. And so you can see right in the middle of this seven years, it is divided. In the first half, Israel is protected. Israel receives this Jewish man. They think he is their Messiah. But an event will happen right in the middle of the seven years that will open their eyes and they will realize it is impossible for this man, the beast, the Antichrist, to be the Messiah. Jesus predicted this. He said in Matthew 24, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken through Daniel, not the historian, But Daniel the prophet, Jesus said he wrote of the future. He didn't record history. So if you side with the liberals, you're going against Jesus. Let me make that clear. Which was spoken through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place. Let the reader understand. For them, there will be great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now. So usually we refer to the first half as the tribulation period, and the second half is the great tribulation period, though technically on one spot, the first half is called great tribulation, which would make the second half great, great tribulation. In either case, it's seven years, and when the Antichrist goes into a rebuilt temple, some of you were with me in Israel two months ago, and we went to the Temple Institute. We saw all the architectural drawings for the temple. We saw people going through the street chanting there on Independence Day, celebrating 70 years of miracles as a nation. We want to build the temple. We want to build the temple. That's what the Jewish people were chanting. It was incredible. We saw all the furniture reproduced, all the priestly garments out of the fields. They're training them in the sacrificial system. It is all in place for this event that is coming. It's not by accident, friend. And Paul tells us when he describes this event that the Antichrist will go into this rebuilt temple and he will oppose and exalt himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God displaying himself as being God. That has never happened, but it's going to happen. 
Daniel writes it 600 years before Christ, 700 years virtually before John writes, because he writes in 95 AD. So here's the next chart. Again, Daniel speaks of one year, two year, plus a half a year, three and a half years, 42 months, 1260 days, same terminology found here. And so here in the second half of the trip of this seven year period, Mr. Nice Guy, Mr. Peacemaker, so to speak, is going to make a major change in the way he operates with people. The Antichrist will take off as nice guy, peace negotiator, wonderful leader, uh, uh, mankind mask, and he is going to demand of things that he had never demanded before. And he will openly declare himself to be God. And as we're going to see here in our study of the Revelation, he is going to do it in a way that will convince the Jewish people that he cannot be the Messiah. I mean, if Jesus went into the temple and said, this is my father's house, which he did, he was in essence claiming to be God Almighty. That didn't make him a phony. But the way the Antichrist is going to do it, the Jewish people are going to recognize that he is a fake, a fraud, that he is of the evil one, and God is going to pour his spirit out upon their hearts, and they're going to believe that Yeshua is Lord. Look at verse 5. There was given to him, for he can only do what God allows him to do. It was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act, just like Daniel says, 42 months was given to him. Right out in the margin next to this verse, Daniel 11.36. Put that out in the margin. Remember, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. In Daniel 11.36, we read, Then the king, speaking of the Antichrist in that chapter, this king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods. The coming Antichrist is a blasphemer without equal, and verse 5 of Revelation chapter 13 amplifies and illustrates this statement. He comes with braggadocious words. He comes, Daniel says, with speaking monstrous things. He comes with great boasts. He has a mouth on him that is uncompared to any leader who's ever come. Hitler could sway the crowd. This man will sway not just the German people, he will sway the entire world. And he will make great boasts, he'll get you to believe that up is down, down is up, black is white, white is black, that if you kill your own mother, you're serving God if you're serving him. And Jesus said he will come with such powerful signs, wonders, and miracles that if possible, because it's not possible, he would deceive even the elect. Furthermore, in verse 6, he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, namely those who dwell in heaven. This man of sin is the very mouth of hell. When he speaks, hell speaks. And he speaks blasphemies. And blasphemy is when you speak evil or irreverently or profanely about God. That's one way in which you can blaspheme God. Blasphemy can also be accomplished when you claim to be God and you're not. That's what they accuse Jesus of. Why are you stoning me? Because of the good works I do? No, but because you who are just a man make yourself out to be God, you're guilty of blasphemy. That's what they said. They used the same word. 
or it can be accomplished by claiming to have the power to do something that only God can do, like the power to forgive sin. And of course, as we're going to learn in the Revelation, this coming man of sin will be guilty of all three. But as Daniel says, he will speak monstrous things against the God of gods. That's what Daniel 11.36 teaches. Now, let me read the second half of Daniel 11.36. And he will prosper, listen, until the indignation is finished for which is decreed, for that which is decreed will be done. So Daniel 11, like Revelation 13, indicates that God puts a time limit on this man's ability to blaspheme until the indignation is finished. Now, the Hebrew word indignation speaks of the righteous anger of God Almighty. Last weekend, I was in D.C., and I was witnessing to a man from Togo and And uh, he said to me, well, wait a minute. He said, you're a pastor. Don't you believe God's a God of love? I said, of course. Well, if God is a God of love, then he's going to send everyone to heaven. Uh, That's Rob Bell's message. That's what he spoke at Willow Creek, where he's still welcomed as a speaker, this man who performs homosexual marriages. Hey, look, friends, it's not by accident that this past week the whole homosexual issue was front and center again. Because remember, the coming of the Son of Man will be like the days of Noah, days of moral impropriety, sexual immorality, and the days of Lot, days of moral perversion. It is not by accident that this thing... Look, again, one of the largest PCA churches in America this week had the rejoice conference where they had all these speakers saying that you can be a Christian and you can be homosexual. Who would have ever thought, who would have ever dreamed that someone could, in an evangelical church so-called, take such a position? I said to him, no, God has a righteous anger and God will vent it. Listen to Isaiah 10.25, it's used, same word. For in a very little while, the prophet says, God is speaking, my indignation against you will be spent and my anger will be directed to their destruction. It will leave you, it will go to your enemies. Or Isaiah 26.20, come my people, enter into your rooms and close your doors behind you. Hide for a little while until the indignation has run its course. So Daniel is speaking of God's righteous anger against his people, Israel. Remember, it's called the time of Jacob's trouble. One of the functions and purposes of this seven-year period is not just to bring people who have never heard the gospel of every tribe, tongue, and nation to faith, but to bring Israel to faith. Israel will believe that Jesus is Lord. If you remember in Daniel 8, 19, he said, behold, I am going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation, for it, uh, for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. When are most Jews going to believe? At the appointed time of the end, in the latter days. And so here's this chart once again, seven years. Next event, the rapture. Could happen today. Nothing ever in the history of the church has ever needed to be fulfilled for Christ to come and gather his church. Could have happened one day after Pentecost. And then God would have fulfilled the remaining prophecies for the second coming, and Jesus would have come back shortly. 
All kinds of things have to happen for the second coming to occur. But that God has set the stage in our day. Israel was destroyed in 70 AD. In 135 AD, the rest of the Jews were forced to leave the nation. For 2,000 years, they had no land, but God didn't forsake his people. He gathered them back as the prophet Ezekiel predicted in the latter days. Latter days being the end of the end. We're in the last days, have been since Pentecost. And so Christ's return has always been imminent. But the second coming happens in the latter days at the very end of time. The rapture, this man of sin comes on, Israel's protected, Israel's persecuted, sealed, trumpet, bold, judgments, Armageddon, that slash really is right at the second coming, but we couldn't make it quite fit like that, but they too almost happen simultaneously. We're coming to that period. So remember, the first half, Israel protects, Antichrist protects Israel, second half, he persecutes Israel, and it's going to be persecution that's going to come when they say, you are a fake. We're going to study it. Be here next time. You don't want to miss it. We will see why they will come to that conclusion. And the time of Jacob's trouble will really become a time of trouble. And this is when the Jewish people are going to be converted. This is what Moses said all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 4. When you are in distress... And all these things have come upon you when in the latter days, a term used all the way through Scripture to speak of the final seven years of human history before Jesus comes back. In the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and listen to his voice. Zechariah the prophet, speaking of this same time frame, said, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they pierced. They nailed him to a cross. Isaiah writes this 700 years before Christ. Crucifixion hadn't been invented yet, and God is describing how Messiah would die. They will look on Jesus whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. Listen, they're going to be converted during this second half, especially many in the first half through the preaching of the 144,000 Jews through the two witnesses in the second half, and they're going to hear the gospel, and they're going to believe in Jesus, and then they're going to see him come in the skies. As believers, they will mourn over the fact that they crucified the Messiah. Now, don't blame it on them, because the Roman soldiers actually put the nails through And it was your hard hearts and my hard heart that were the hammers and our sins that were the nails. He was pierced through for our iniquities. We put him on that cross. Don't accuse the Jews of deicide. We nailed him there. And they are going to realize that the Messiah of Israel was rejected. And their hearts are going to be broken in repentance Listen to what Jesus said in the 19th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. This is Palm Sunday. He enters Jerusalem. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side 
He's describing the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. On the same day, Matthew records, he weeps over the city, Jerusalem, Jerusalem who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling, not unable, unwilling. And then as predicted by Daniel the prophet, Jesus said this in the next verse, behold, your house is being left to you desolate. And then he makes a remarkable prophecy in verse 39. Listen, for I say to you, From now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The rapture of the church can happen at any moment, but the second coming cannot. And one of the prophecies that must be fulfilled for Jesus to come back on the earth to rule and reign from Jerusalem is the Jewish people must say, cry out, blessed is he, meaning Jesus, who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, don't get lost in this forest of theology. The Jews are going to realize that this man's, this one world leader's theology is not consistent with what God has already revealed. They'll see he's a phony. This one, verse 6, who opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. Blasphemy is just going to belch out of his mouth. He will be one of the most persuasive speakers the world has ever heard. You can almost hear him too as he blasphemes those in the tabernacle of God, those Jews, those Gentiles who believe Jesus. They ought to be slaughtered. They ought to be killed. They ought to be stoned. They ought to be slaughtered. And that's what he is going to do. And we will see that, like most cult leaders who want to be worshipped, he will demand worship from the world around them. Now, secondly, I'm almost done, believe it or not, the Antichrist is coming to destroy the saints of God. Not only is he coming to defy the God of heaven, verse 7 indicates he is coming to destroy the saints of God. It was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. Now, verse 6 indicates that Satan cannot harm the glorified saints who are in heaven. So he blasphemes those who are in heaven. But he can harm those saints, tribulation saints, who are upon the earth, with the exception of two groups of people. You can't touch the 144,000 that are preaching the gospel. This is how men are going to hear the gospel. You can take a gun and shoot them, and it won't do anything. And you cannot harm the two witnesses until right at the end when God allows them to be harmed, but then he will raise them up from the dead. But if you are a believer, Jew or Gentile, and you come to faith during this time, one of two things happen to you. Really, one of three. You either flee into the wilderness where you're protected. Two, you're imprisoned. Or three, Revelation 20 verse 4, you get your head cut off. Those are your options. Flee into the wilderness where the Antichrist can't get you. We've already studied that. Go to prison. And so Jesus speaks of this time. Whatever you did to the least of these, my brethren, you did to me. When I was in prison, there are some believers who will be willing to identify with these tribulation saints who are in prison. It will cost many of them their lives. 
They'll go to prison. They'll get their heads cut off. Now, we apply that loosely today, and it's a legitimate application, but he's speaking of the coming tribulation period. Or you can get your head cut off. Those are your three options. Not a whole lot to choose. So it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, not in a spiritual sense, but in a physical sense. Remember earlier in the Revelation, we saw all the saints in heaven saying, oh, Lord, how long, how much longer are your people going to be slaughtered there on the earth? Revelation 6, 7, they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed. And so it's during this 42-month second half of the tribulation period that the final saint of God will be completed, and then Jesus will come back. Finally, the Antichrist is coming to delude the masses on earth. He's coming to defy the God of heaven. He's coming to destroy the saints of God, but he's also coming to delude the masses on earth. Again, in verse 7, an authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. World domination. You say, how will he be able to accomplish this? Well, certainly by persecution or by reward. But as 2 Thessalonians 2 teaches, by great false signs, wonders, and miracles, he'll bedazzle the world. We've seen one already today where he will have a fatal wound and he'll come back to life. But he will also control the governments of this world through a single economy. We'll discuss that more next time. There's going to be an economic collapse that's going to embrace the whole world. And the Antichrist will come, and through his system, he will control everything where you will not be able to buy or sell anything. It will be one nation under a false god. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Some of your translations say all the inhabitants of the earth. Some translations read all who live on the earth. The Greek text reads literally all the earth dwellers will worship him. The earth dwellers are a specific group identified all the way through the Revelation, we've already seen them three different times, who are confirmed unbelievers, who prefer darkness over the light, who have taken the mark of the beast, who refuse to bow down and call Jesus Lord. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name, notice, has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of the Lamb, the life of the Lamb who has been slain. The unbeliever who worships the Antichrist, according to this verse, does not have his name in the Lamb's book of life. Now, the Bible says that these names were written down before the foundation of the world. You say, God had it all fixed. I don't have a chance. No, God is omniscient. It's called the foreknowledge of God. People manipulate that word today, but there are four instances in the New Testament where the word prognosco just means prior knowledge. Paul said, you had foreknowledge. You knew my former way of life and what I was like before I followed Yeshua. Foreknowledge, prior knowledge. God is omniscient. He has all prior knowledge. He knows the beginning and the end. He wrote down the name of every person who would be saved. We saw already in Revelation 3, it will be impossible to erase your name if your name is in that book. But God's foreknowledge in no way mitigates against your free will. What it boils down to is your name written in the Lamb's book of life. 
Now, this uh, verse actually looks in two directions, but it's somewhat difficult to take the Greek and put it out smoothly in English without adding a bunch of words. On the one hand, it's looking about those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world, but it is also looking at, in the Greek New Testament, of Christ's death that was in the heart and mind of God before He ever created the world. We'll see that later in the Revelation specifically. God knew what man would do. God knew that you and I with Adam would rebel against him. And so it was in the heart of a loving God to come and save us and to redeem us. And so the slain of the Lord Jesus on the cross was planned ever before God even planted the tree on which he would be slain. Verse 9 and 10, if anyone has an ear... Let him hear, that is, you give attention to what I'm about to say because it's really important. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance in faith of the saints. Those destined for captivity because they are saved during this time in human history, and so through persecution they are imprisoned or they are killed, don't be discouraged, because those who kill with the sword, with the sword, they must be killed. What is he simply telling us? He's saying whether you're locked up in prison or you are killed by the sword, God is going to make every right wrong. God will not forget his people. So keep pressing on. Here is the perseverance and faith of the saints. Now, how are we going to apply this? Let me suggest three applications as we close. Number one, we are to remain faithful no matter how bad we are treated. Remember, this was written not just for those living in the future, but it's initially written the Revelation to seven churches that existed 2,000 years ago and every church like ours that have read it in 2,000 years. There's some lessons here to remain faithful, to persevere no matter how bad we are treated. Someday God is going to make every wrong right. Someday those who've been harmed will indeed see justice. In Paul's day, persecution was great. And he reminded the church at Thessalonica, for after all, it is only just for God to repay affliction with those who afflict you. Wonderful. When's it going to happen? You see, the apparent prosperity of the lost who have always hated God's people, they always seem to be winning. They just haven't read the end of the story. Because God is going to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, for that's what eternal life is. Not just knowing that God exists, all men know that, but having a personal born-again relationship with him. To those who do not know God and to those who do not obey or respond to the gospel of our Lord Jesus, because God commanded you to be born again. And if you refuse that, you will meet God. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Secondly, this text reminds me we should not fear the devil, but we should certainly respect him. Don't fear him, but respect him. Michael the archangel said, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. He saw that God is the ultimate authority, 
And we've seen that all the way through the Revelation. Even in this chapter, I have it underlined four times in this chapter, given to him. And verse 5a, a mouth was given to him. 5b, authority to act for 42 months was given to him. 7a, to make war was given to him. 7b, he has authority over every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. It was given to him. Four givens to the Antichrist, to blaspheme, to lead, to persecute, to rule. Now, who gave him these freedoms? Well, the immediate source was the evil one. But as Luther would say, the devil is God's devil. We've seen all the way through the Revelation that the devil is on a leash. He is under the control of a sovereign, omnipotent God. He can only do what God allows him to do. A brother in Christ out of fellowship with the Lord said to me one day, I'm afraid of Satan. I said, you ought to be afraid of Satan. As long as you continue to control your life and live outside of the will of God, but if you choose to live within the parameters of God's will, you can hold on to the promise with all of your might, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world, that nothing can happen to you unless it is filtered through the hands of a sovereign God. It's like going to the zoo. You see that lion to which Satan is compared to? prowling up and down that cage. You put your hand in the cage, look out. But if you respect him and you keep your distance, you have nothing to fear. This section of Scripture underscores that truth that we should fear the devil, uh, that we should respect the devil, but we don't need to fear him. Finally, we do not have to be here for this coming time of tribulation. You don't have to be here for this coming time. Now, in verse 9, we read it. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. I read that. Do you notice something's missing from this verse? Seven times over, we read it in chapters 2 and 3, a very similar statement. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What's missing? The church. Because the church will be taken out. The church will be caught up. The church will be raptured, and it could happen today. And unless you're listening to me somewhere in the world and you just haven't heard the gospel, you might have a chance. But I'm going to give you the gospel right now. Jesus died, was buried, and was raised. And if you do nothing with that, you have zero chance. And you are destined for unbelief, for the seven-year tribulation period, and ultimately for the eternal lake of fire. Now, if you die and go to hell, you'll have no one to blame but yourself because God who set the penalty made a provision for you and His Son, Jesus. You call upon Him today, He'll receive you, for He receives sinful men. Our Father, thank you that this is not simply what you have said. This is what you are saying. This is not just about the future, though it is. We acknowledge it. But this is also about today. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and wills today to respond. I pray that we would care about the souls of the people around us, 
that we would not come to this church week after week just to be fed, but that we would own and take seriously the Great Commission, that as we gather each week, we would serve your people, for in so doing, you have called us to build up one another because we're members one of another. But then during the week, as we're scattered Help us to be faithful, to care about the souls of men and women and boys and girls and point them to the Lord Jesus before it is forever too late. Father, help us to see the writing on the wall as the American evangelical church continues to apostatize in preparation for the coming great apostasy. Help us to have our eyes wide open to walk circumspectly right in the center of your will, obeying you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength by your grace. Help someone today here, Father, who's unsure of their destiny, wherever they may be listening. They're not sure heaven is their home because they've never rested, your word says, in the finished death, burial, and resurrection to make an eternal payment. They're thinking today that in the back of their heads, there's something that is not good enough. Help them to see, Father, by the Spirit of God, that they can never be good enough, that Jesus saves, that their human effort is not the way, but that He is the way, and that there is salvation in no one else. Help someone today to say, Lord Jesus, save me. Help some other child of God who is a member of the body of Christ to become a member of this local assembly of believers because we need them and they need us. And we ask it now in Jesus' name, amen.